0: On this episode of History Worth Saving, we're talking to a good friend of mine, a guy who was reared down in Enterprise, Alabama, went off to pharmacy school, became one of the largest drug dealers on the East Coast, the legal way, <laughs> and has spent his, his life telling the story of our airmen from the World War II generation. The men who kept saying, in his words, put me in, coach, they knew that these missions that they were flying were missions that had less than the chance of winning a coin toss for survivability. These were dangerous, but they were necessary. And Larry Kelly has spent his life reminding us of these stories. In fact, in just a few more days for the 75th anniversary, of the end of World War II, Larry Kelly will be flying his own B-25 Mitchell, a World War II bomber, in, in part of a huge flyover called the Arsenal of Democracy, right up and over downtown Washington, D.C., to help commemorate that. But when I met Larry, it was in the, uh, in the airplane that he loves, Panchito, the B-25, to help tell one of these stories back in my days in television. By the way, if you have not already subscribed to the History Worth Saving newsletter, please do so right there at HistoryWorthSaving.com. Larry Kelly, thanks for being here.
1: Good morning, Matt. Uh, thank you for having me on.
0: Did I get that right? Largest drug dealer on the East Coast. I love the ring well, of that.
1: But... Yeah, well, I, I, that, that sort of caught my attention, too. Well, uh, our, our specialty was... Uh, and still is because I still work for you know, Remedy Senior Care, which is uh, one of the largest in in the country right now. But our specialty was pharmacy services provided to long-term care, meaning assisted living facilities, nursing facilities, and other types of institutional uh, settings where uh, you know an in-house pharmacy was not. You know, available. So we provided the same type of services as an in house pharmacy does, like in a hospital. But uh, we provide it from a centralized location in industrial parks. Now, how does a guy from Enterprise Alabama
0: grow up to become a pharmacist in Metro DC? Because there's a huge gap there.
1: Well, Some people may laugh at it, but, you know, growing up uh, down south, I was the first ever in my family going back to Revolutionary War to ever go to college. So I didn't have a whole lot of experience in the family, even though my parents were very hardworking, you know, good, honest Christian folks. But they didn't know anything about how to advise me about going to college. But uh, also they instilled upon me that going to college was not an option. It was mandatory. Uh, they wanted to have, you know, they wanted, to, like many people of that generation, wanted their kids to have something better than they did. But, uh, uh, you know, I'm sitting down, I, I first enrolled in a community college and uh, I thought accounting would be my forte. I'd be an accountant, right? Well, after a couple of semesters of bookkeeping courses and stuff, I decided I was not that. It was not that kind of our sit, you know, with a bunch of books and do numbers kind of a person. So I literally got a paperback book about careers and I started thumbing through this little paperback and I still have that paperback. And I was reading in there about all different kind of careers and different kind of professions and what they are and what they do. And I came across pharmacist. And my mind immediately went to old doc Mitchell there in enterprise. So when we kids get sick, we didn't go to the hospital. We didn't go to the emergency room. We went to the druggist and the druggist would come in on a Sunday and he would see us and he would give us medicines. And I just always remember what a, what a, what a, uh, what an, an important part of our community, old doc Mitchell was and how everybody respected him. I said, I want to be like doc Mitchell. So I did. I changed my major to pharmacy, and I was scared to death. Here I am, a simple country farm boy, and I'm in college, and I was scared to death. How in the world am I going to survive this with all of these smart people? So my first semester, I had a 4.0 grade point average, and I looked around the room. I said, well, I guess I'm just about as dumb as the rest of them, or they're as dumb as I am. Or the others. Maybe I will survive this. And so I did two years community college and then went off to Auburn university did my three years of uh, professional school because it's five year curriculum. You know, at the time, the hard thing was I was having to work full time, had a little small restaurant enterprise while I was going to school at Auburn, which is a hundred miles away.
0: Now we have to stop right there because this is an important part of the story that a lot of people, unless they're really nosy friends like I am, are going to know about you. You actually started, this well, you worked at this pizza joint and then you bought it while you were in school. General Jackson's pizza.
1: Yeah. General Jackson's pizza. A Colonel can fry good chicken, but it takes a general to make a delicious pizza. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) We had that, we had that on the wall and uh, we believed it. We did make, Yeah, we put everything we, we could put into that and we treated people right and it became very, very successful. And after I got to to college and my parents continued to run the business, it became a, uh, uh, my younger brother you know, was involved by then and you know my parents wound up making a, a my father who was a carpenter my mother was a housekeeper you know wound up making a uh, a comfortable living for themselves and their you know up till their retirement you know uh, as, as they continued to run the business my dad built a new building expanded it uh, did very well but uh you know working full-time and going to college full-time 100 miles apart was uh, it was quite a challenge and I only wrecked two cars during those three years falling asleep, driving back and forth, but uh it, <laughs> uh at least I survived both of the accidents. But uh, after college I uh I went to work for uh as a pharmacist on a mobile in mobile infirmary and like many people right out of college I had this great zeal for, you know, uh, research and, you know, making a change in the world. So I did some original research published an article in Alabama Journal of Pharmacy and the director of pharmacy where I was working at Mobile Infirmary wanted to take a look at it before I sent it in since it was going to be my first published article. So I gave it to him to review. He wound up reviewing it, sending it on in for me and then wound up adding his name to it when he did nothing more than just simply review it. So I decided I can't work for this man. So I called some friends who had already gone to work up in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins and said, Hey, but y'all hiring up there. And, uh, they put me in touch with John Newcomb, who was the director, assistant director of pharmacy and in charge of personnel. So I called John, talked to him for a little bit, hung up a phone. I think, well, oh, I just wasted his time, my time for a half hour. And then a week later, a airline ticket put up in the mail. This is back in the days, you know, when they actually had a paper airline ticket Had an airline ticket and a letter inviting me to come for an interview. I said, what the heck? So I got out a map, figured out where Baltimore was. Got out on an airplane, flew to Baltimore and did an interview, took up um, most of his day and my day and flew back home and thinking, okay, well, I just wasted his day and my day. And a week later, a job invitation letter showed up in the mail where they offered me a job. And I said, what the heck? So I packed up my car, what a little bit of belongings I had and moved to Baltimore. Uh, Went to work at Johns Hopkins and three and a half years later, John and I left went into business for ourselves, started our own business with the institutional you know, background that we had and grew that into one of the largest uh, pharmacies and our type of specialty uh, in our, in our market. And uh, then in 1997, you know, we had some folks come along and made us what we thought was a ridiculous offer. So we sold the business. And then uh, after a little hiatus, I joined up with some friends who had started a new, uh, robotic dispensing system, and I said, I want to be part of that. This can be fun without having to work for worry about payroll, just worry about taking care of customers and taking care of clients. And uh, my specialty, which is pain management, started doing that. But back as a kid, I uh, when i was nine years old. My uncle, you know, we didn't have a whole lot. You know, you know we had a 1952 Chevrolet, and this is in the mid-60s. You know, that was our car, our our family car. And uh, the house we lived in, my dad and my uncle built. But uh I had another uncle, Jug Brown, who was an A and P mechanic and an IA and maintained for beechcraft the Queen Airs out at Fort Rucker, Alabama. And uh but he had bought a wrecked Taylor craft, Thunderstorm had turned it over and tore it up and he's gonna rebuild it. And like the old Shake and bake commercial and I helped. Okay. <laughs> Uh, so you know, as a nine year old. I'm out there helping him. And I was just fascinated with this little airplane. And so, uh, it took us about a year and a half to totally rebuild the airplane.
0: And for and those who don't know, this thing is made out of metal tubing and wood and fabric. I mean, it's as simple as it gets.
1: Yeah. It's a very, very simple. Didn't even have an electric starter. Didn't have an electrical system. You started it with hand prop, and He taught me how to hand prop it. And, uh, He'd get me, he'd get in the airplane, and we would uh, prime the carburetor and pull a propo through a couple of times. And then the old classic, like in the movies, you know, mags on, mags on. And I'd pull that thing through, it'd start, and I'd run, jump in the, in the right seat. We'd take off. Enterprise Airport back then was a grass airfield. We'd climb up to five, six, seven thousand 7,000 feet. He would reach over, kill the magneto pull the nose up, kick the rudder hard, kick it into a spin. We'd spin that thing all the way down to just before the ground and he'd pull it out of the spin and uh, land it and say, yeah, start it again. And I'd get out We would uh, pull that thing through, start it. Here we go. Go do it again. Or we had fun doing that. I'd never forget the fascination I had with that. And a few times we would fly down to Geneva, Alabama, land on a little country road, taxi up to the Dairy Queen, sit in that little tailor craft and have a burger and a milkshake. And then Monka Brown, he'd call the sheriff and tell the sheriff, of course you had to use pay phones back then. He could pay phone and call the sheriff. Sheriff would come out, block the road. And we'd take off, fly back to enterprise. Like, can you imagine doing that today?
0: Well, but, not uh, not legally
1: and not getting away with it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, that was aviation in the fifties and right. uh, in, in, in you know, South Alabama, you know, airplanes themselves were rarities. You know, for, especially for privately owned airplanes, there weren't that many. What few private airplanes were around were mostly crop dusters, old steerments. And at Enterprise Airport, I used to go out and I'd wash airplanes and hop rides and Fairchild PT 19s and Ryan PT 22s, steermans. Uh, you know, most of the airplanes that were available to the public then were, you know, for the public where I lived, uh, it was just World War II surplus stuff that, you know, people bought and just kept on flying. And, uh, so I developed my love for aviation right there and then, but of course really couldn't afford much until after, uh, uh got out of pharmacy school and after, you know, John and I went to business, you know, back then when we first went to business, we couldn't even cash our own paychecks and we ate peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for the first year. But, uh, once the business became successful where I could, uh, afford, you know, I, uh, a couple of friends and I decided we going to go to Oshkosh. So we went to Oshkosh. Which is the world's
0: largest aviation event. I mean, it's, there's nothing. World's,
1: the largest aviation event in the world, right? And uh, there were, I think four of us went up there. And uh, I, at that point the hook was set and there was nothing doing, but you know, I couldn't throw that hook. We got back, uh, this was uh, early August, and I started looking around for a flight instructor. I found a flight instructor you know, down at St. Mary's County Airport, John Christman, who was a helicopter pilot for the state of Maryland, uh, Medivacs, and he was also a fixed wing flight instructor. So talked to him and uh, took my first uh, uh, lesson, first real lesson in a real airplane, you know, with a real flight instructor legally uh, on the 23rd of September. And, uh, on the 24th of December, I took my check ride, uh, for private pilot and I had bought a Cessna 182. and, uh, through the family and the airplane the next day. And we flew to, flew to Florida for Christmas with the family. So, um, uh, uh, right I got right into it.
0: I'll, I'll say that much. Well,
1: there, <laughs> there was no need to put it off. That's right. right. There was there, there wasn't no putting it off. I was uh, the hook was set and I had a hankering as my mama would say, I had a hankering to get it done.
0: Well, I want to pivot here just and, uh, a bit, because this is important here. You you, you got your, your license to learn, as they say, and worked your way up through your ratings all the way to a commercial pilot. And, and something happened there. You realized that there was sort of a mission in your life at some point during all of this
1: to tell these stories. Well, even, you know, by the time I got my private pilot, I was already hooked on, uh, you know, history you know, sometimes I wonder if I wasn't, you know, you know, reborn from, uh, you know, a, another generation, a generation ago, you know, the house I live in was built 1860. I drive around town in 1939 Cadillac, you know, so, uh, but I've always had, my father was a World War II veteran and I saw what, you know, I had, I had learned very quickly what he had gone through and, my interest had always been in my libraries, about 3,000 books, and I read them all. They're all, you know, World War II related histories, biographies, mission histories, uh, et cetera. It's a fascinating period of time. It's the most significant time in the history of mankind, you know, it's basically 1935 to 1945. And, uh, and I saw also how that history was so fast and so quickly being forgotten. By a generation of of people so fixated on on themselves, and it became somewhat of a mission to me to tell that story. Uh, early on in my flying career, I bought a UC seventy eight old bamboo bomber and restored it. Spent three and a half years restoring it and began, uh, you know, telling that story. Not only locally, but you know, across the countries, we travel around. You know, doing air shows on the weekends. And uh, expanded that, of course, bought the B 25 in 1997. I want to uh, talk about that a
0: bit because you bought this airplane, this B 25, the most, today, it's the most recognizable B 25 in the world, Panchito. And your buddy yep. Tom Riley, our mutual friend, and then you go down to pick it up. Tom had restored the airplane. It was on its
1: way to France or something, if I recall. Well, yeah, you know, I. I I had, uh, I had always in 1992, I was at Oshkosh, you know, with the bamboo bomber and I was out there at the airplane and it was the, they were celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Doolittle raid. And, uh, uh, there were 16 B 25s landing right over top of my head. And I'm looking at these airplanes and that is the most magnificent warbird there is. What a unique airplane and what a unique place in history. You know, the airplane, sure. the, flown by 80 men, 16 airplanes, 80 men that changed the course of the war in the Pacific. There was a whole bunch of the Doolittle Raiders that were there and attend us, you know, that year. Uh, What a magnificent airplane. But, you know, my life at that time was seven days a week working. Only occasionally could I sneak away. And even then I had to make certain I was near a phone because, you know, running a business and a hundred employees and nursing home clients, you know, you don't tell somebody at three o'clock in the morning that they, you know, doctor wants a dose of kale Pectate. They're going to get it at three o'clock on a Sunday morning, you know? So, you know, that had been my life for, for 30 years. And then, uh, suddenly 1997, we had this company that wanted to buy our company because of our history, our reputation, our client base. And so literally on a Monday morning, I literally sat up in bed, six o'clock in the morning, and I said, I can finally buy a B 25. I've always <laughs> wanted a B be 25. You know, it is time for me to do something for myself. I've spent my entire life doing stuff for everybody else. I'm going to do this. I called Tom Riley who I'd met at Oshkosh back in uh, 1990. And uh, when he showed up in a B 24, he had just restored and didn't even have a hotel reservation, but he showed up uh, cause he had just finished doing a restoration and of course won, you know, grand champion with the airplane. But uh, uh, I, I called Tom. I said, Tom, I want to buy a B-25, what's for sale? And he said, well, Panchito is for sale. I said, wow, I know that airplane. You know, that airplane's on by Rick Korf. It's based up in Geneseo, National Warplane Museum. Well, he said, no, it's down here at, at Titusville and by an air command's hangar. He said, Rick Korf has got it up for sale. I said, okay, who's the broker? He told me. Uh, so I called the broker, asked him the price, very reasonable. I said that sounds good. And uh, Denny Sherman. So I said, you know, asked Denny the price. He said, but there is a a couple of Frenchmen on their way here to buy the airplane. Well, I've been in business a long time. I know money talks, as they say, BS walks. So I said, Denny, is there any money on the table yet? He said, no. So boy, this is something could have backfired on me. I said, all right, call Rick. Tell him I'll give him a ten thousand dollar cash deposit. If you hold the airplane for me till Friday, this is Monday morning and now about nine o'clock. If he'll hold the airplane to me for Friday, if I buy the airplane by Friday, it goes toward the purchase price. If I don't, he can keep the money. Five minutes later, my phone rings Is then he said, okay, Rick said he'll, he'll take you up on that. I said, what are you going to tell the Frenchman? He said, I'll put him up in my hotel. They were literally in the air on an airliner on the way wow. over. So, uh, I called Tom Riley. I said, Tom, how fast can you have $10,000 in Denny Sherman's hand? He said about an hour and a half. I said, go to your bank, get 10 grand <laughs> cashier's check, take it to Denny. I mean, this is all being done on a handshake. Now we didn't have any formal contracts. This is just all honest people. You know, I, sure. my daddy used my daddy used to build houses on a handshake. Okay. Uh, so Tom borrowed a, a of from somebody there at the airport. He ran down to his bank, got a cashier's check. I uh, flew down to Dennis Sherman, gave him a deposit. And of course I went to my bank later that morning and had money transferred back to Tom Riley to cover the money he was taking out of his account. And so now I had a gentleman's agreement, didn't have a formal agreement, but I felt confident with it. Rick's an honest man. Denny Sherman certainly is. Tom Riley certainly is. And uh, so we had an agreement. So of course this is before computers were quite so prevalent as they are today. Everybody didn't have personal PCs and, and stuff uh, like we do today. Records weren't as computerized as they are today. So I had to start, you know, the uh, record search and makes a certain there was no liens on the airplane, all that kind of stuff. I made arrangements to get down to Florida. I get down there on the Thursday we start doing a pre-buy inspection. Tom finds a broken motor mount on the airplane. He repairs that quote warranty repair, even though he had finished the, the 15 years since his restoration. Right. He wanted, he wanted me to own that airplane. It was always his favorite restoration. So it was a scramble for two days, Thursday and Friday, going through the pre buy inspection, going through the parts inventory that was going along with it, all the paperwork, this and that. So on Friday afternoon, sun starting to set. I finally we walk out in the hangar. I literally broke out in a cold sweat of anxiety. Holy, what have I done? Yeah. I'm standing there looking <laughs> at an airplane. I didn't even know how to get in it. Well that was I my point. Up to Tom. <laughs> yeah, how do I, I get said, in it? <laughs> <laughs> He's hooking it up to a tug to tow it out. I said, how do I get in it? He lowered the hatch down and showed me how to get in. And I tell you, he started going through a start procedure. I thought, I will never learn this. He started flipping switches. You know, it takes it takes three hands and a, and a dozen fingers to, uh, to start a B25 between fuel boost pumps and igniters and uh, uh, energizer switches and stuff. You don't have to have a key to start this thing. You got to have a college degree just to figure out how to flip all the switches in the right sequence to get it started. Anyway, I'm thinking, ain't no way in the world I'm going to learn how to fly this, start this airplane. Now we teach it. But, uh, Well, and that's the point the airplane
0: airplane is still, it's still in service to this great country of ours. Uh, you train, train a lot of folks how to fly it, who are some of the, the best, uh, test pilots in the world
1: these days. Well, yeah we uh we do a class four times a year where we teach people how to fly the b twenty five I've now accumulated about twenty almost twenty four hundred hours uh in type in b twenty five uh one of the highest time civilian pilots you know flying to be probably i think I'm second or third highest time you know uh Paul Neuer and I are pretty close together right now, and Tom Riley's still number one, but we're both catching up with him pretty quickly. Tom's you know, a little busy right now. We're restoring three or four B-17s, a P-51, and a couple of other airplanes. Even though he's 76 years old, he's still multiple restorations going on.
0: And the XP-82, uh, of course, is for sale uh, at yep. the time of broadcast, it'll is, be for sale.
1: Oh, wow, 20. what a magnificent yeah. airplane that thing is, too. What a unique airplane. I, I want to I've bring this up, though, a couple too. couple hundred parts to that airplane.
0: We just have a few minutes left, and I want to get to this. I don't want to miss it. Your your rides program uh, that is running right now, your living history flights, they're up and running. So if someone who's hearing this would like to come up and take part in one of those at your museum in Georgetown, Delaware, I know I know there's a lot of folks that listen to this down south. Yes, it is north of the Mason Dixon line, but Larry will take good care of you.
1: Hill. Well, we're, we're only about 15 miles on the other side of Mason Dixon. Line. Just so over the board. If you hold your breath, you're okay. <laughs> That's fine though.
0: So we, but we, take you, a good we care, also
1: yeah. take, we also take the airplane all over the country, you know, in October we'll be down at the, uh, uh, Lockheed air and space show in, uh, uh in Orlando. We'll be at, uh, warriors and warbirds, you know, in Monroe, North Carolina. And you know, we travel, we'll be at wings over North Georgia, uh, you know, in, uh, Uh, later this summer so uh, but DelawareAviationMuseum.org is the website and from there you know there's a link you can click on takes you to a phone number shows you our schedule where we're going to be and we'll work out things but one thing Matt we want to make certain you know that I, I have spent the 23 years that I've owned this airplane and a number of years before that making I guess you could say life's work out of trying to help the world remember the veterans that fought in World War II, uh, you know, and what this whole country went through during that time, you know, so few people today have an understanding of what a maximum effort World War II was. Yes, it wasn't fought on United States soil except for the Aleutian islands, but it was, uh, uh a total commitment. People, young men standing in line to, uh, to volunteer, knowing that they had less than a chance, 50% chance of surviving, you know, their missions to come home, but it's still standing in line and volunteer. Losses were extremely heavily in the early months of the war. Uh, the early couple of, first couple of years of the war, 1943, there was the first daylight bombing mission over in Berlin. For instance, one commander launched his entire command that morning. And that afternoon, his, his entire command was nothing but the ground crew personnel. He lost all of his airplanes. All 16 B-17s were shot down. He lost his entire command on one mission. People today, you know, they don't understand what a commitment that was. And other men just stepped right into that position, stepped right up, put me in coach and, and, and went in. Today you see what's going on in our cities and I write these people have no concept. They have no concept. You know, of of what America is really about. And till I draw my last breath, I'm gonna keep trying to tell that story.
0: Well, Larry Kelly, you're a man on a mission and I appreciate you coming on this show and sharing a little bit about it. Again, you're gonna be around the country if folks wanna come see you in Panchito. Don't get out west a whole lot, but if they wanna come out here and see you, you'd love to see them. Of course, it's Delaware, the Delaware Aviation Museum Foundation, and you can find out more about them by visiting their website, which we'll quick link uh, into this show. Larry, thanks for coming on. I look forward to seeing you down the road somewhere.
1: Matt, it's always always good to see you. It's always good to talk to you and and to share that whole passion for that generation and that era.
0: Well, next time you come on, we'll tell the story about a little town in Missouri
1: and That's we'll tell half the story. our story in itself. <laughs> we'll tell the story about it. Missouri is Kennett, Missouri is. Uh, <laughs> we'll tell that it. is a story worth telling. It is,
0: yeah. and we'll tell it next time. It's history worth saving, and so are you, Larry Kelly. Thanks for being here, folks. You can find out more about Larry by just visiting the website. Quick linked into the show story. Remember to sign up for the newsletter for history worth saving. And I, I am so serious when I say this. When you sign up, it helps us out more than you can ever imagine. When you share this show and other people listen to it, it helps build this community. Remember, this country, so deeply divided right now, cannot heal itself if we don't get to know our neighbor. You can't relate to somebody if you don't know them, you can't like them, you certainly can't love them if you just don't know them. So what we're trying to do and what we've been trying to do from day one, tell great American stories, regardless of the side of the fence that it's on, and just let you get to know people. So I hope you'll be a part of this great experiment as we contend it at historyworthsaving.com. Again, historyworthsaving.com. If you're just listening to us, please go there, sign up today, and subscribe to the show and the newsletter. Thanks again, folks. Get out and know your neighbors. Until next time, I'm Matt Jolly, and this is History Worth Saving.